Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. My name is Lakin Zay Kemp, and I'm the author of the Puro Bel Pre Honor book, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, and the upcoming companion novel, Heartbreak Symphony, which comes out on April 5th. And today I'm joined by Vanessa Torres, Johnny Garzavia, and Terry Katatsus Jennings. And today on this episode of Ask the Musa, we'll be answering your questions about how to deal with the realization that you need to start your book from scratch creative tools and triggers we use while drafting, and where we were when we found out our books had sold. Uh, Vanessa, can you start off, off by introducing yourself and telling us a little about, a little about your book? Yeah, of course. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Vanessa L. Torres, and I'm the author of The Turning Point, a young adult novel that comes out on 2-22-22, so I'm just a couple weeks away from my debut, which is super exciting. And it takes place in 1983 Minneapolis. It follows Rosa Dominguez. She is a ballet dancer and quite prince obsessed. And she is navigating some complex family expectations, following some pretty significant trauma and change in her family, as well as a new love who looks way better in his point shoes than she does. And her own aspirations to dance for the purple one himself, Prince, who happens to be rehearsing for the movie Purple Rain above her studio. Johnny? Yeah, hi, I'm Johnny Garzavia. I am the author of young adult novels that are very Chicana and equally queer. Uh, like my debut book, the Pura Bel Play Honor book, 1500 Miles from the Sun, which I like to say is basically Selena's Dreaming of You, but with Twitter and Make It Gay. And Under and Something We're Here, coming winter 2023, which follows a, a non-binary muralist who falls for the newest waiter at their family's taqueria. And Terry? Hi, I'm Terry Catasus Jennings, and today is the birthday of my newest book, A Biography in Verse, Polly Murray, The Life of a Pioneering Feminist and Civil Rights Activist. Um, Polly Murray was Black, queer, and in my eyes, the most consequential woman ever. Uh, she figured out the strategy that eventually won Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated schools and eventually brought down Jim Crow, although she did not get credit for it. Uh, and she was um, the main moving force in obtaining equal pay for equal work for women in 1964. I'm also the author of the Definitely Dominguita chapter book series. And I have a new picture book coming out on May 17th, uh, The Little House of Hope with Neil Porter books. Thank you. Okay, so before we get into listener questions, I do want to share some exciting news, which is that the format for our Ask Them Was episodes has changed. We spent a lot of time during the off season looking at data and crunching the numbers and basically figuring out what worked and what didn't, what our listeners enjoyed most. And as a result of that, our most popular series, Ask Musa, is getting a makeover. So this season, every episode will start with a short book talk where we get to gush about books by Latinx authors that we're currently reading and loving, followed by a Q&A featuring three listener questions, then we'll jump into our new publishing chisme segment, the part of the show where we break down what's happening in the industry and why it matters to the Latinx community. And finally, we'll end with a short and sweet craft tip that you can easily implement into your next writing session. So before we get into the listener questions, does anyone want to share a book by a Latinx author that they're reading and loving right now? I will. I am right in the middle of the last Cuentista. Uh, no, not in the middle, not even just in the very beginning. And, and I know why it won the Newberry. I mean, it is so different. It is so unbelievably different and so well-written. And I find myself 
every second wondering how is she going to, you know, what's happening next? What is coming? How is she going to make this work? And it is just absolutely the idea behind it is just so novel, so, so, so different. And um, I can't say enough about it. So y'all go out and get it because it is wonderful. Yeah. And for anyone who's hasn't heard uh, <laughs> that yeah. the Las Quintista, you know, swept the ALAs, won every award possible. Um, it's a story about a girl who she and her family have to leave earth because it's about to be destroyed. And, you know, they have to go find a new planet to live on. And when they arrive on this new planet and everyone sort of wakes up for, from the synthetic slumber, she is the only person who remembers what life was like on earth. She's the only person who holds the world's history and all of these stories. Um, and it's about, you know, the, the consequences of her having that knowledge and the importance of her keeping it alive. So yes, incredibly beautiful story. Highly recommend. Anyone else have a book they want to shout out? First of all, I cannot wait to read that book. It's on my TBR for sure. And um, I'm reading um, Angela Velez's book right now. And that, that came out today. I'm in the middle of it. So, and so I can't like speak to the end, but so far I love, I love it so much. Um, it's called Lulu and Milagro's Search for Clarity. I want to get the title right. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, I mean, the voice is so captivating and strong. It just pulls you along. I want to turn every single page over and over and over again. It's hard to put down. Highly recommend. It's a beautiful debut. Yes. And if you'd like to hear more about Angela's publishing journey, about her process of writing Lulu and Milagro's Search for Clarity, uh, we do have a debut spotlight episode where she breaks all of that down for us. So definitely go listen to that. Yeah, and there's there will be no disappointment in the ending. The ending was wonderful. I will I will just like um, double down on Vanessa's um, book talk recommendation. Um, Lulu and Milagro Search for Clarity is, I think maybe like the best coming of age story I've ever read. Like period. Um, it like it follows these two sisters, one of who is really brainy and like has this sort of whole ten year plan in her mind and the other one is just kind of like vibing through life which I love and like as they go on this college road trip together it's, it's really very much like about family expectations and our own expectations and what people say we can and can't be and figuring out on our own terms what we can and who we want to be and um yeah I it's brilliant it's perfect it's iconic it's everything um go go read it Thank you all so much for those recommendations. Okay, so if you're listening and you heard something that piqued your interest, please consider purchasing the books that we mentioned. We'll link to them in the show notes um, or you can request them from your local library and then don't forget to leave a review. Okay, so now it's time for listener questions. This first one comes from Alexandra and the question is, how do you deal with the fallout of realizing that you have to rewrite your entire story from scratch? And we can just go in the same order that we did for intros. Oh my gosh, that's a nightmare that I'm afraid I might be in now. No, I'm not in it right now. I hope. So I'm in the middle of writing book two and the outline hasn't technically been accepted, but my editor before she went on maternity leave told me to just go ahead and write it. Yay. And it's due at the end of March. So I'm like frantically trying to get this draft out and with this huge fear that I'm going to have to write something else. 
or really change, you know, a bunch of stuff. And I guess if that happens to me, I'll go back to the drawing board with the outline because I used to be a total pantser. My debut, I just sat down and wrote the book. I didn't have an outline at all. I don't know. It, it just, it flowed out of me very naturally and I didn't need an outline, but for this one, I was required by my publisher to have one and it's been super helpful. And so I won't say that I've been completely converted to a plotter, but uh, it has really helped me. So I would say get a basic outline. And even if you're just going to basically outline another book, another idea, that could be really helpful just to have that waiting in the wings. I would say like, I think the first, but maybe not necessarily specific piece of advice I would give is to remember that unless there is like putting in that asterisk there, there, there isn't a timeline or a deadline for when you need to have that book written and fully realized. And sometimes projects take time and that's just kind of like the reality of writing. Um, this has happened to me and it's the worst. Um, the third book I ever wrote was drafted during NaNoWriMo 2020. And like, I felt so prepared. I thought of the book a few months prior and had for the first time a whole outline for this project. And I actually drafted it in 11 days, but then going back over it and like in the revisions process, I realized that one, there wasn't any sort of subplot in like just like cushion and life in this book. And aside from like the main storyline and two, I just didn't really like the main character's story arc. And I spent a lot of last year just trying to figure out what substance was missing and what I hated about my main character's journey and what I can do instead. And it has been tough. I am like still as of this recording, working on revisions and trying to figure it out. Um, I'm on a deadline now, so like I have to figure it out now. Um, but yeah, I think what's really helped me is just like seeing what parts of the manuscript and older versions of it I can keep and kind of just like puzzle into pieces of this story and build what I loved about it. That way I can just kind of like use that and then from there build a story that I really like. Um, and I, I think I would also say that just like if stress is taking out all the pleasure of that story and the rewrite, just step away from it for a little bit. Like sometimes we got to realize that we need to de-stress. We need to not think about all the things for a little while and just go find non-writing things that make you excited for the story and come back when you're ready. Okay, well, um, I wrote a book about, uh, it was a historical fiction about a girl during the Cuban revolution. And that book got me my agent and we were both very hopeful, but the book went out on two rounds of submission and there were lots of good words, but nothing, no buts. So uh, my agent, Natalie Lacoselle, decided that, you know, maybe um, it, she got a couple beta readers and they decided maybe had too much history. So we, I rewrote it, focusing on the friendship of just the girls within that group. And that still didn't work out. So then we went, like Vanessa, did the outline, did the outline. And then when Natalie was satisfied and happy with the outline, then I rewrote it. But again, my beta readers at that point said still there wasn't enough, um, enough emotion. And, and I, I do a lot of, I have done a lot of um, nonfiction. So, you know, maybe that's my problem. So now I have tackled that novel in verse. 
And I am so happy with the way it's coming out. I am about, I don't know, a, a fourth of the way through and page, page count, of course, that's not going to mean anything, but um, it's just, it's working out a lot better. And I have an additional subplot, um, Johnny, of the protagonist doesn't know anything about her mother. And that's, that's what's driving, you know, some of her behavior. So, um, so yeah, it's a long, and I started that one in 2008, guys, before I go away and stop answering this question. I do. Uh, I did write this polymery book that just came out today. I, it was written in several different ways. One was a picture book, one was a prose, and then the biography and verse, and the biography and verse was what sold. First of all, I would just say that this is not unusual. Lots of writers have had this experience of getting deep into a manuscript and then realizing that they need to start over from scratch. This happened with my sophomore YA novel, which comes out in a month on April 5th. The subject matter was just really difficult and it was a really personal project. And so I spent years sort of writing around the core of the story instead of like bravely going where I needed to go. And as a result of that, I ended up having to start over from scratch twice. So it's not a reflection on you as a writer. It's not necessarily a sign that you should abandon the project. All it means is that this particular manus manuscript is being a little stubborn and elusive and that it's going to take a certain amount of mental toughness to get it right. So my advice would be to not dwell, let yourself be sad and frustrated for a little bit, but don't stay stuck in that mindset. And if that means setting the manuscript aside for a period of time before getting back to it, that's totally fine. When I realized that I was going to have to start from scratch with my sophomore novel, I did not jump back in immediately. Instead, I wrote a novel in verse, which will end up being my junior novel. And once I finished that new project, you know, high on that sense of accomplishment, that's when I returned to my sophomore book. So sort of like Terry, I feel like verse kind of saved me. So don't be afraid to switch up the format. Take the time you need. Remind yourself that starting over is something working writers have to do all the time. And also remind yourself that there are no wasted words. Like all of the work that you did previously still matters. It helped you get to know the characters. It helps you better understand what makes them tick and how they would behave in certain situations. It showed you what wasn't working and how not to tell this story. And all of that is extremely valuable. So even though it may be tough to get started again, the next draft is going to flow so much more easily and it's going to be so much smoother than if you hadn't written all of those scrap pages. Okay, so for our second question, are there any creative practices you use while drafting? Pinterest boards, face cast, playlists, YouTube videos, writing scenes that aren't part of a storyline, et cetera. What's your strategy? Okay, well, I definitely listen to music when I write. That's something that I actually have to do. I can't stand silence when I'm trying to write. It's actually distracting to me because now I'm listening because then I'm just listening to all the little sounds around me and like my brain just doesn't work that way. I like working in busy cafes, although I can't really do that now with COVID. So that's a big bummer. So I always have um, music on and I try to kind of pair the music with whatever the scene is that I'm writing. I mean, I'm not going to listen to something really sad and whiny if I'm writing something that is really upbeat and has a lot of action. I also have YouTube, um, like a 
just a window open behind my document. Sometimes, especially for the turning point, I would have company classes up because a lot of professional ballet companies live stream their company classes. So I would just have that up behind my document. And um, it just really made me feel like I was in the ballet class. And that was really helpful for writing really technical ballet scenes because yeah, I was a ballet dancer, but it's been, I, and I still take class, but it's been you know, so many years since I've done it consistently. So that was super helpful. I also have to really set myself up for success before I sit down, meaning if the dishes in the sink are going to be yelling at me or screaming at me the whole time I'm writing, I might as well just do those first and run a vacuum over the floor or whatever, or do whatever I need to do, take like 15 minutes to do that before I sit down to actually write. But yes, I would say music is the most important accessory for me when I'm writing. Uh, yeah, short answer, yes. I like all of it. I'm, um, I'm big on using Pinterest boards. I love creating playlists. Um, I, I literally need face casts like to write. I'm just a hugely visual writer, which makes me a little slower when it comes to drafting because a lot of the times, especially in the beginning, I like to just like spend some time daydreaming and getting into the like the heads of my characters. Um, and for Andre and Something were here specifically, I was doing a lot of looking up like menus at taquerias around San Antonio. So I got kind of like a vision of what like the taqueria in that story would look like and like what the food there would be like. Um, I was also watching a lot of YouTube videos on murals and muralists and street artists because the main character is a muralist. Um, and I like also sometimes a lot of times um, find myself on Zillow just to like have a reference for even what the main character's house looks like, which is probably a little bit intense, but um, I, I do that too. Just maybe it's a time waster, maybe it's not, but like, yeah. I normally write backstories for characters that I'm having trouble with. I I am not, I, I am uh, the kind of person that's really scattered. So I can't have music or anything else going on. Otherwise I'm going to be following that rather than rather than writing. Um, but one thing that I do is that once that I'm in the trenches and I've done, I've gotten a lot of the book um, written, I'll, I'll do a table with a chapter by chapter. So saying, here's what happens in the chapter, how, uh, what, how it contributes to the story arc and then how it contributes to the emotional arc. And with that table, it's easier for me to see where the story may not be moving forward or where I can cut or combine a chapter or where um, I uh, need to uh, flesh things out. Um, and writing, doing the emotional arc is something that's very, has been good for me because again, I'm, I'm not, it's hard for me to get to, to, get to the emotional heart of the story. Um, I've done like a hero's journey. We did the, uh, the hero's journey with the Cuban book and that has turned out to be good. Um, and I have, I did it in just a book that I just submitted to her. Uh, it was very, very effective. And then I will do passes on the book. And if, again, go do a pass and make sure that there is good emotion in every place. Make sure that I have described things in every, um, it, it, you know, in every chapter, in every scene and that uh, the, um, the reader can tell where I am. So I, I, you get, get to know the kinds of things that you're not good at and then go back and have different passes to fix those. 
in the past, I never really used any of these tools. <laughs> Literally everything I knew and needed for the story was in my head or in the notes app on my phone. Definitely not organized in any aesthetically pleasing way. I am truly a discovery writer. And so like 99% of what I learn about my characters in the story as a whole happens during the actual writing process. However, after writing, you know, four or five traditionally published or soon to be traditionally published novels using this method, I've found myself getting stuck lately and stuck in a way that feels a lot like burnout. And so my normal methods aren't necessarily working anymore. So I do have a plan for my next way novel to move a little bit slower and to maybe incorporate some of these planning tools to see if they help but I can definitely feel my creative self craving something new. And then last listener question, where were you when you found out your book sold? And you can either answer this in relation to your first book or your most recent book, or maybe your most interesting acquisition story, your choice. Okay. Well, um, I only have one to reference because I debut in, <laughs> in a couple of weeks. So um, I was, my book went to auction. So it was really nerve wracking. That day was, I was so nervous because I knew Eastern time, 9am Eastern time, it was going to go to auction and I'm on the West coast. So I set my alarm and got my butt out of bed really early. And my agent had already we had already kind of set up that she was going to text me updates as, as we went along. And the way that it went was the first round went until 2 PM Eastern time. And then the top two went to the second round and then it closed at five. So it was, it all happened within one day. So I knew it was going to sell, but I didn't know to who, or, you know, what the deal would actually be. And I was standing in my front yard and I was, you know, I was glued to my phone and I received a text message that the auction had closed and um, that I received a two book deal from Penguin Random House, not <clears throat> book for children, book for kids. So yeah, that's where I was in my front yard in the sunshine, wishing for a glass of wine, but it was way too early for me. And <laughs> yeah, it was really exciting. I, um, I think it was like the last time I was at a Starbucks before the pandemic shut down the entire world. Um, like I was like sitting outside with probably an iced chai. Um, but like, I remember my agent calling me about 20 minutes before I had to be at work. And I just could not think of anything else that day. I had two jobs at the time and I'm pretty sure I called out in the second job just so I could like go scream into a wall instead because I needed to like have feelings um I don't remember my second one that much it was last year during a pandemic so probably in my apartment and not very um exciting except like it was really cool um but yeah well the definitely Dominguita book uh I got um I got just an email that said um something like sit, sit with this for a minute uh take your time and I went hmm what is it so and I opened it it was that we had gotten an offer on the Definitely Dominguita series. So that was a lot of fun. But the, the most interesting the one, the most exciting one was, um, actually it happened a year before I got the Definitely, or maybe months before I got the Definitely Dominguita one. Um, but it was um, when Natalie told me that we had to rewrite the Cuban book and she sends me this 
email saying, hey, sorry, we're just going to have to redo this. She had this long list. But at the bottom, she says, but by the way, I just sent out your, uh, we used to call it the La Casita book because it's a little house. So um, we, I just sent out La Casita right now. So I said, okay. So I sent her this little um, picture of a sun, sun, uh, sunset. And I said, well, you know, tomorrow will be another day. Everything will be fine. And about an hour later, I get another email says, Neil Porter is interested on, in La Casita. Within, you know, like an hour, I went, holy, you know. And, and, and so the, the note she sent me, his note, his note says, I'll let you know, I'll let you know right away. And so all day long, the next day, I was carrying my, my phone around waiting for the call from Neil Porter, which didn't come for two weeks, but we had the offer in two weeks. That was wonderful. Yeah, that was so much fun. I was actually teaching summer school at the time. Luckily, I was just there providing linguistic support. So I was having to float from room to room to help different students. And so every time I stepped into the hallway, I was checking my phone for an email from my agent. And usually authors don't they don't always know or don't always have a relative idea of when they might be getting an offer unless like Vanessa was saying you have an, an actual auction scheduled but in my case the interested editors were all at the same conference that week and my agent was there as well and because she was able to have in-person conversations with people things were expedited you know she wasn't waiting for them to respond to an email which you know could have taken weeks and I think her being there and being accessible also made the situation a little more exciting, a little more competitive. And so the interested editors were all sort of rushing to get a preemptive offer in to try to scoop up the project before it turned into an auction situation. So all of this was happening, you know, states away while I was at work. I do remember that I was checking my phone so many times that I actually accidentally dropped it in the toilet. <laughs> And this is, you know, a high school girl's bathroom toilet. <laughs> so it was horrific. And, you know, I think it was eventually like an email um, on my laptop that contained the news. I don't know for sure that day is so fuzzy, but I do know that it was, that was the last year that I ever taught summer school. <laughs> okay. So now it's time for some publishing chisme, the part of the show where we break down what's happening in the industry and why it matters to the Latinx community. And today's topic is a hot one. It is book banning. So let's get into it. First of all, what are y'all seeing out there? What's going on where you live? And what does it all mean? Well, yeah, it is a hot topic. And my daughter was just talking about it actually, and she's in grade school. So it's it's even at the, you know, the, the kid level, which is <clears throat> so sad to me. And I guess I would say to everyone out there that I'm just sorry that we must waste precious time <clears throat> even fighting something like this. It's so frustrating. And for us in Olympia, the libraries are really banding together to, um, they're creating virtual groups so that we can kind of get ourselves together and figure out what we're going to do about it. Um, I haven't really heard much more yet. I feel like a lot is going to come down the pipe soon though. I don't know what anybody else is hearing in there. Olympia is a pretty small town. So I don't know. I don't know what is there, what is everybody else hearing out there? I, uh, I mean, living in Texas, it's kind of just like been made the center of the book banning world and uh, discussions. And I mean, even here in San Antonio, we have 
a school district that did start becoming even more of a center of attention when they started taking out these books that were in um, a list presented by a state representative um, that had hundreds of books that he wanted to be evaluated, uh, most of which were BIPOC authored, queer authored, um, books that just really weren't, at, were at their basis, just books that made um, people that weren't cishet white kids feel visible. Um, and, and book banning and things of that nature have been going on for centuries. But like, I, I think this year it feels um, different in, in that like it's following up just a period of equity and of movements that I felt were really promising with like the Black Lives Matter movement and, um, and taking on police brutality and stuff like that. And so it's very interesting to see how something like that that I really felt hopeful for and and being at marches like that only what a year ago two years ago however yeah just a year ago um have now turned into something like this um where you know kids uh, who need them black kids latinx kids asian kids indigenous kids are are not getting that sort of representation and are not being allowed to have that sort of representation in their classrooms um, I think about how just over a just over a quarter of public school students in Texas high schools or schools in general are white and the rest are BIPOC students. And so it's not even a discussion of diversity. It's a discussion of meeting the needs of our students. And it's really interesting just to see that being so um, taken the wrong way. Donnie, you are you are so right, and it's it, it's happening now. And um, and working on the Polly Murray book, I mean, I saw how this is happening. You know, we can take two, three steps forward, and then the whites find some way to get around whatever that law was or whatever that forward movement was. Come on, so it's um, and it's it, it's continues. It happens and happens and happens and happens, and and it's very very sad. Um, Meg Medina had a, uh, you know, I'm Virginian and she's a Virginian and uh, both Cuban Virginians. And she, she is, uh, she had a, she sponsored a thing at the James River Writers uh, about um, book banning. And there was a, there was a librarian who had been in Iowa, I believe. And she was like the head of uh, children's library, um, library services in Iowa. And she quit her job because of what was going on and uh, unfortunately that's not enough you know her protest now she doesn't have a job but they're doing they're, they're still banning books and um gosh i don't i don't know what we can do so i'm also in texas <laughs> with johnny and there's actually several other musas who live hers live here as well and i think like Johnny already mentioned, one of the first things that got a lot of media attention was the list of books put out by Texas lawmaker Matt Krause. And it was a list of 850 books that he believed were promoting critical race theory, when in reality, this list also targeted books, like you said, Johnny, about the LGBTQIA plus community, books teaching students about their civil rights, um, as well as like really random selections, if you go look at it, that don't seem to have anything to do with by POC or queer communities. Basically, the list is a mess, but it accomplished what it needed to. It got people fired up about CRT and it got them interested in the books accessible to students in their own schools and communities. 
But because white supremacists have been using CRT as this opaque, nefarious catch-all for any books featuring quote-unquote diversity, it's given these people permission to basically go after any book they don't like for absolutely any reason. And to me, this is what's most concerning. The fact that this manufactured outrage changes with the wind and you never know who they're going to go after next and to what extent. And then of course, there's no due process for these books that some kids out there might desperately need. But I think what's especially unique about this time is that there is such a heightened level of scrutiny right now of teachers and librarians and what's going on in the classrooms. Um, Like you mentioned, Terry, that books don't even need to technically be banned in order them in order for them to be removed from schools and libraries this air of we're watching you we're coming from you for you we're creating laws that make your doing your job dangerous like all of that is really terrifying and every day I think about how I would be handling this if I was still in the classroom and I can tell you that I would be scared out of my mind so it's this fear of getting in trouble of losing your license, of even being thrown in jail here in Texas that is causing teachers and librarians to make the self-protecting choice of removing books preemptively that may be considered controversial just because they don't want to even take the risk. And so even those school districts and even statewide and national organizations like ALA, for example, provide guidance and procedures on how to take a book through the evaluation process to see if it should be removed or not. People are skipping over these procedures altogether. And that is exactly what white supremacists want. They want us to be so scared that we don't even bother putting up a fight. And in the process, they're specifically trying to undo all of the work that you mentioned, Johnny, all of the work that organizations like We Need Diverse Books have been doing for the past eight years They're targeting those books that teachers and librarians have been adding to their collections in an attempt to make them more inclusive and diverse. So books by authors of color, books by LGBTQIA plus authors, books by authors who were already marginalized and who already have to fight tooth and nail in order to break into the publishing industry, that is who is being harmed most by this right now. Um, And so let's get into the specifics of that. Let's talk about how this relates to authors. What advice would you give to an aspiring author from a marginalized background who feels like the stories they want to tell are ultimately going to face scrutiny and potentially be banned? Yeah, I would say, first of all, it's okay to let yourself feel the unfairness of it all. It's, it's perfectly okay to sit in that space for a while, but just know that your, your stories are important. They have relevance, they have meaning, and there are people out there, there are millions of people out there who will see themselves in your books. And I just think the more we support marginalized writers, the more we're going to flood the market. And that's what we, that's what we need to do. And it doesn't even mean buying the book. It means requesting it from your library. It means boosting um, these books on social media. It means supporting groups like, or just following groups like Las Musas, We Need Diverse Books. Uh, I've been getting pinged by all the nerd camps. They are you know, circling (laughs) and planning, which is really awesome. So I would just say, yeah, I mean, keep writing your stories. If we stop writing our stories, then what happens? They win and they can't win. Yeah, this has been something that's been on my mind. I think ever since um, I found out that I was getting a Buddha Belt Play honor and then seeing on Monday how like 
my book and Lakin's book and um, Marcia's book, uh, all, all of them which take place in Texas and by Texas authors, like are about subjects and characters that like can very easily be seen from the perspective of not something that people would want in their libraries because of these, this sort of rubric that our government and a lot of local officials um, see and what is what is good. Um, and it's really hard like to like be really happy about winning that sort of honor, but then also seeing how this newfound um, like all these eyes that are now on our books is, is gonna shape that. Um, and also like, it's just a very weird privilege that some people, mainly like white non-Latinas get to choose to write a bannable book. There have even been tweets about praising the idea of writing a book that will end up being banned because as Latina authors and specifically as a writer of stories about very queer and very brown characters trying to navigate this world, we just have to sit here and watch as stories true to us, written by us, written for young people who look like us get hated on and get misinterpreted and get removed from classrooms and library shelves when we don't get to make that choice. And honestly, I don't think I really have any sort of words of wisdom except maybe like to keep trying and to keep writing stories by us for audiences who look like us and share our history and to persist in giving students stories that show we can exist and we can be the main character and that we deserve all of the things is better than giving up as daunting as the present moment is. Yeah, Johnny, I totally agree. And Vanessa, I am exactly with you. I think we can't give up. We have to continue writing and we have to continue getting the stories out there and continue fighting if the books uh, get banned. You can't, um, you know, I, I hear you, Lincoln, that, that if, if you were if you were a teacher that you would say, hey, I can't take that risk. It's, you know, it's your bread and butter. You can't take the risk of losing your job. Um, but we as, as writers um, can continue to ping the, um, the, pub, the publishers with our work and can continue to get our work out and then fight like hell to get it uh, in the hands of children. Um, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to change hearts and minds. Um, other, you know, we can't just say, oh, well, it's going to get banned. I'm not going to write it anyway. No, please do. And, um, you know, sometimes people say that, the, you know, there's no bad publicity, um, but I, I don't like that idea. Um, but I think we have to continue. I think for authors, especially aspiring authors feeling discouraged by this right now, and wanting to find ways to press through it. I think most importantly, you've got to get really clear on your why. Why do you write the kinds of stories that you do? What is sort of the higher purpose or the higher calling of your work? What does it mean? Who is it for? What kind of impact are you hoping it will have on those readers? And the reason this is so important is because on your worst days, in the midst of the worst of these attacks on marginalized creators, your why is going to be your life raft. It's going to be the thing keeping your head above water, above all the noise. It's the thing you will be clinging to in those dark moments. So make sure it's as clear and present in your mind as possible and that you return to it over and over again in order to remind yourself why you have to keep going. 
And then I also want to offer some practical advice, which is to be a little bit more cautious with your advance money or to at least have a backup plan on how you can easily re-enter the workforce if your original plan was to say right full time. And the reason I bring this up is that, like I said before, there's very little rhyme or reason to which books are being targeted. There's currently no due process for these books. And so your book could end up on a list somewhere or end up getting pulled with no warning. And if your book is targeted, unfortunately, there is the potential for that challenge to spread, for it to be picked up by media, which could then result in schools preemptively pulling it off the shelves for libraries to cancel their orders. So despite what white authors who see a banned book as a badge of honor have to say on Twitter, there are negative financial implications to this. Schools and libraries are a kid-lit author's bread and butter. That is where you're going to sell the most books, especially as a debut who isn't well-known by the general public. Libraries are where people are going to discover you. So it's a huge and devastating loss to be excluded from those shelves. And so with that in mind, you just want to be prepared for every worst case scenario, because even if you got paid a large advance, even if your publisher is putting tons of money and resources behind the marketing and promotion of your book, even if there's tons of buzz and it seems like a sure thing, if someone goes after your book in a big way, it could destroy all of that potential. And I know that that sounds so awful and so scary, But that is where we are headed if this wave of censorship continues to build. So just, you know, be cautious, be careful, but definitely don't stop. Keep going. We are hand in hand with you in this fight. Like, and there, you know, there is, there there are ways that the books can be, um, there are procedures for evaluating the books, but you you said it's, it's very true that they're being skipped over, but there are procedures and that's, Another thing that we need to do is make sure that if one of those books is one of our books is banned is to go back and make sure that the procedures have been followed because uh, there are there are ways to judge the books to see whether in 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 place in states and counties um, to make sure that nothing something is not banned um, frivolously. We know that it's not working, but that is that is another tool that you have to keep following on that. Yeah, and that leads us into our last question on this topic, which is what can people do about this? What are ways we can make an impact in the fight to keep books by and about marginalized communities on bookshelves? Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm going to keep writing my books. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to keep writing the stories and encouraging other people to write the stories and mentoring a couple of high school students from my old high school right now who are uh, who are Latinx and I am encouraging writers in my critique group to keep writing their stories and I am boosting as many books as I can on social media and I'm ordering from the library and I mean I'm contacting libraries that aren't even in my my region I mean I'm casting a wide net which I think is really important as well. So just keep keep writing. I mean, that's well, that's all we can do, really. Um, a, a questionable person, but um, I just I I think of the quote from Cesar Chavez that like you you can't oppress the people who aren't afraid anymore. And I think that's just something that like we have to really hold on to. That we've seen what equity feels like when we read stories that have characters that look like us and are allowed to believe that characters who look like us who are written by authors who look like us can be 
the center of that world. Um, and, and I think the best way to really do that, aside from continuing to write, which you absolutely should, um, is you know getting in contact with your state elected officials, with your school boards, with your local elected officials. If you are an author, get in contact with school boards that are kind of in the center of attention and also like just put yourself in there um, about being about having these books on shelves. Um, as when I was in college briefly as a poli-sci major, the, the first thing I learned was that all politics is local. And I think that this is very true when it comes to this sort of thing. And if that is true, then I think conversely, all revolutions are communal. And so like these things are going to be decided by people who live in our zip code in our neighborhoods. And it's going to be as much our responsibility to keep these books in there um, as it is their fight to take them away. Um, and so, yeah, like we've, we've just got to get involved. Yeah, Johnny, you're absolutely right. I mean, you do, you do need to get involved. And, um, and like Vanessa said, the other thing is just continue to boost each other and to mentor each other. And so that there's a lot more books to the point that we can't, that we don't have to be afraid anymore. Um, but absolutely, you do have to fight and you do, I mean, the, the banning of books in Virginia just came out through a, a grassroots effort. Um, so grassroots efforts have to turn that back around. Okay, I've got a lot to say about this, so bear with me. <laughs> So whether you are an author or reader, I think it's absolutely essential that you find a way to regularly support the organizations that are already engaged in this fight for equity and inclusion, especially those organizations that provide books directly to students. So of course, there's We Need Diverse Books. There's also First Book, which um, distributes books to students in need. They also run an online marketplace where educators can purchase books at a discount, and they're focused on curating a diverse selection of books for that marketplace. Um, an Open Book is another literacy foundation that gets free books into the hands of kids, as well as providing Title I schools with free author visits. And in very exciting news, the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival will soon be able to um, collect donations as well. If you want, you know, your money to specifically go towards the Latinx community and providing books and other resources for Latinx students, um, please keep us in mind. But ultimately, I would recommend learning more about these organizations or an organization in your local area, and then figure out what kind of contribution would be most sustainable for you. Can you set up a monthly recurring donation? Can you volunteer your time once a month or once a quarter? I think especially for aspiring authors out there or authors whose book hasn't come out yet, getting involved with organizations like these can serve multiple purposes. You're learning about issues of equity and diversity that exist in publishing, as well um, as about how these and similar issues negatively impact students from marginalized communities. You're getting to know people who are tangential to the publishing industry and building relationships with them. But most importantly, you're helping to create and strengthen this necessary infrastructure that is just going to make it more possible for future young people to have access to your books. And I want to make this really clear. If you're writing for children and teens, this kind of advocacy work is also part of your job. Some people might disagree with me when I say that, but that is my personal opinion. If you're going to write books for kids, you also need to be invested in making sure books stay accessible to those kids. 
And then on a smaller scale, on a more individual level, some other things that you can consider doing um, are finding ways to be just as loud as the white supremacists calling for books to be banned. I mentioned before that some teachers and librarians are pulling books preemptively simply because they don't want to take the risk of being called out or worse, you know, having their licenses revoked or even being arrested. And the reason they're feeling the pressure to do that right now is because those white supremacist voices are the loudest. So your teachers and librarians need words of encouragement from you right now. They need community advocates. They need you to organize your own group of parents and community members um, and sign up to speak at the next school board meeting, like we've already mentioned, and then speak at the next one and the next one and every single school board meeting for as long as it takes the tide to finally turn. And if your local schools or libraries are struggling to be safe spaces right now, create your own. Las Musas just launched a brand new book club for students and any responsible adult can create a chapter. So if your child's school isn't including books about Latinx or BIPOC or queer characters in the curriculum because they're afraid of the backlash, start a book club in your own neighborhood or with your child's soccer team or with your family members. We've got eight great titles to choose from for this spring semester with new ones coming in the fall. And as long as you can commit to reading at least two books by our participating Musas before the end of the school year, you can schedule free virtual visits with the authors. You can also share information about the Las Musas Book Club with your local public libraries, with any teachers you know, or other adults who you think might be interested in leading a chapter. We've got downloadable flyers on our website. You can share them via email or print them out and help us by distributing them so that we can create those safe spaces where kids have access to books with characters who reflect the world around them. But we can't leave it up to someone else to fight this battle. Whether you're an author or an aspiring author or a reader, this fight affects you, this fight needs you, and this fight can't be won without you. And finally, it is time for our final segment. What is one craft tip that you want to leave listeners with today? Hi. <laughs> I like the post-it note method of doing a storyboard after I've written the book. And I don't do it before. A lot of authors do it before, but I do it after I write the book so that I can have a visual where I can see each character and where they appear too much or too little in the book. It gives me a clear vision of their story arc. So basically it's just a big board and each character gets their own color assigned post-it notes. So, you know, purple, pink, green, you can get them online or anywhere and each character gets their own color. And then I make a grid on the big piece of paper and then each chapter gets a square. And then each character that appears in each chapter, their post-it note goes in that square. And then on the post-it note, I write what happens to them in that chapter, their conflict, their arc. If nothing, if I don't have anything to put on the post-it note, then I've got a problem. It, it tells me right away that the character either doesn't need to be there for that chapter or I need to give them a reason to be there. And it really helped me make seamless character, make my characters have seamless arcs throughout the story because the turning point is really an ensemble cast and every character has an arc, a very distinct arc. And I had a couple characters disappear for a while and my agent was like, oh, where'd they go? So once I did that storyboard, it was very clear. And I am a very visual person. I know somebody else said that earlier and I'm very much so visual too. So that really helps me. I think about this time that a fellow young adult author and icon legend and star Adib Karam once told me that 
I don't have to prove how clever I am to anyone as a writer. Um, I, I just have to tell the main character's story. And I've always kept that close. When I first started writing about three years and a couple months ago, I like whether consciously or not, had this idea that I needed to write with like the prose of Benjamin O'Leary signs and that I needed to fill a book with lines that people would get tattooed on their bodies. But literally that's not the point of writing. Like the point of writing for me, especially as a YA author is to provide stories centering young queer Chicanas and everything else is extra. So like TLDR, take a breath, unclench your jaw, let your shoulders rest and just tell the story. I think I gave away all my, all my tips already, but um, I think I am right now just writing to the end and not worrying about what I'm doing and then going back and then doing what Vanessa is doing is doing my, my little organization chart and then going back and adding and, and not just editing words, but really, really editing and really, really when you do, when you revise, really, really be critical. But that's the only advice that I could that I can give you. My craft tip is to be flexible. And I'm speaking to myself right now, because as I mentioned earlier, I'm looking ahead to my fourth YA novel and I've been feeling really stuck lately. And like all of my old methods of creating just aren't working right now. So my craft tip is to leave room in your creative process for trial and error and for experimentation and for trying something new, whether that's working in a different room or I don't know, drinking tea instead of coffee or <laughs> writing in silence instead of listening to music, writing standing up instead of sitting down, maybe switch to handwriting for a while instead of typing or, you know, write out of order instead of chronologically. I think with every new project, a new you shows up as well. So instead of fighting it, find ways to embrace it. It doesn't mean that your process is broken or that your creativity is broken. It just means that you need a new way of a see, a new way of seeing and approaching the work. If you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for the Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening.